We continue in the series of sermons from Romans this morning, to which I invite you to turn with me. Romans chapter 1, where we'll pick up at verse 7, and we'll read through the 15th verse. To Romans chapter 1 and verse 7, we go. But first, to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, send help, we pray. We have confessed faith in the Holy Spirit this morning, that it is our sure and certain conviction that though we have never seen him, yet he has been active from before the foundation of the world, that he was actively at work in the writing of your scripture, in the Apostle Paul's writing of these words, and that just as surely as he hovered over the waters of the deep, just as surely as he was with the Apostle Paul in Corinth, as these words were penned, he is here now to do a great work of applying your word to us now. For that we ask with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 1, we begin at verse 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now there are a good many things that could be preached from the text before us. Indeed, as I have looked through the books left by preachers who have gone before, I find dozens of ways that this text has been preached, many different themes that could capture our attention this morning. But instead, what I want to do with you this morning is to step back and to see this passage in its larger context. What I mean is, listen to the tone of Paul's voice here and consider the situation. Paul is writing to the Roman Christians, we understand, from Corinth. He is about to go to Jerusalem to deliver the gifts he has collected for the Christians from those Gentile churches, congregations, but his heart is filled with longing and desire. He's about to head east, but his heart is pulled west, westward toward the Christians at Rome, who he has never met and to whom he has yet to preach. 
He's been pleading with God in prayer constantly to open his way westward, to bring him to the Roman Christians. Indeed, verse 11, Paul writes, I long to see you. Now, these are people whom Paul has never met, at least not in Rome proper. He himself had not been to Rome. So from whence came these Christians? Some speculate that uh, Peter went to Rome and started the Christian church there. A speculation that is particularly attractive, of course, to that portion of Christendom which seeks to make Peter the first pope and Rome the Mecca, if you will allow me such an expression, of Christian uh, Christendom. Now, we need not deny that uh, Peter ever went to Rome. This argument is often made by Christians, but uh, we need to be a little bit careful here. There is an early letter among the church's documents that while it does not prove that Peter was in Rome, it does seem to imply it. But uh, that is a far cry from saying that Peter founded the church in Rome. What is more, if Peter had established the church in Rome, it is virtually inexplicable that Paul would write to them but say nothing about that fact. It is clear enough that Paul knew quite a bit about the church in Rome, even though he had not been there, yet he says nothing about Peter, which is inconceivable if Peter established and founded that church. Our best thoughts are these about the founding of that church, that these Christians in Rome are the result of Pentecost, which we celebrated, you remember, just a few weeks ago. Uh, Jews who had been in Jerusalem from all over the world for that great missionary outpouring of the Holy Spirit, a return, some of them returned to Rome with the gospel. And so it's not inconceivable at all that the Christian community there grew from those seeds that were planted. As a matter of fact, the Bible itself points out in Acts 2 that there were visitors in Jerusalem from Rome at Pentecost. After the events had taken place in Palestine, they would have returned home to their capital city and spread the gospel there. If that is, uh, uh, if that is the case, and we might easily imagine it was, then the gospel was in Rome from the very earliest days of Christian mission. But we need not limit our thoughts only to that. Those earliest ambassadors, travel in those days, was quite extensive, much more than uh, we might actually imagine. And Rome was right at the center of those movements. Paul himself had been the instrument of converting many Gentiles to the faith, And so there may be little doubt that those converts to Christianity found themselves traveling through Rome and even settling in Rome. That Paul knew several of them by name and lists them in this letter causes us to think that he had met them somewhere else at some time. This would also explain why Paul does not hesitate to uh, seek the prayers of these Christians in Rome and uh, even to seek financial support for his plans for taking the gospel as far as Spain would also explain how it is that he can refer to the church this church as Gentiles though it also undoubtedly included Jews as well now how interesting to think of it from the other side now from from those who received the letter 
here are Christians in Rome. Christians in Rome. Not whether many or few, we don't know. But in Rome. I mean, here's a city marked by extremes. Extreme wealth and, and power was found in Rome. Treasure and marble statues and impressive buildings. And of course, the Caesars. And then at the same time, in that city, the sinfulness, the, the absolute decadence and immorality for which that place had become known. And right in the center of those extremes, we might throw in the uh, wisdom of the Greeks as well in the Greco-Roman uh, society. And right there in the center of it all is a group of people who are not only different, but altogether distinct, the Christians. With the worship of the emperor and of power and of man-made glory on the one hand and the immorality of the brothel and the circus on the other, Christians stood out in Rome as distinct and apparently as threatening. I say threatening because righteous, righteousness and people marked by unrighteousness are always at odds with each other. Righteous people are a threat to those who would disobey God. The presence of true worshipers is always a threat to idolaters and cannot be tolerated. These same Christians in Rome would be treated very roughly, to say the least, by Rome. We can remember the picture of Christians covered in tar and burned alive as torches in the emperor's garden. Now back to my point. Can you hear in the passage the throbbing heart of the Apostle Paul? He loves these people. He hasn't met them, probably at least most of them, and yet for him, his heart was turned and stretched. Why? for one simple reason. They, too, were brothers and sisters in the Lord. No matter how far away, distance and even lack of personal acquaintance made no difference to Paul. These are brothers and sisters in the Lord. Teach us, we sing, teach us the lesson thou hast taught to feel for them thy blood hast bought. For they are brethren far and wide, since thou, O Lord, for them hast died. And that was the heart of the apostle. And that must be our hearts as well when it comes to brothers and sisters all around the world and in distant places. Oftentimes, we can and we must repent of this. I say often we can begin to think of ourselves far too highly and for the wrong reasons. Most of us see Christianity, the gospel at work, only in the surroundings and the setting of our own culture. And we begin to combine the two of them, Christianity and our culture. We get to thinking that Christianity everywhere should look like Christianity looks 
here in our culture and in our place. And then seeing the pictures of Christians in other parts of the world, we're tempted to, even if only subtly in our minds, to think little of them. They don't look like us. They don't sound like us. They don't relate to one another in the ways that we relate to one another. And we develop a sort of Christian uh, xenophobia. Well, that's so for Paul. He didn't even have to know them to love them. They are brothers and sisters in the Lord and blood, spiritual blood, if you will, is thicker than water. The General Assembly this past week, Dr. Koistra, who is uh, the coordinator of um, Mission to the World, he was the president of Covenant Seminary when we were there, and about the same time that we came here to Owensboro, he began uh, as coordinator of MTW, Mission to the World, our denominational missions agency, delivered his annual report to the assembly, and after assuring us that he has never gone in much for the uh, trinkets and uh, the, the things that the exhibitors give away. There's an exhibitor hall next to the assembly, and they give away flashlights and cups and toys and pens and pads and all sorts of things like that. So he, he told us he never went in for the trinkets, but he did encourage the commissioners to stop by the MTW booth to uh, pick up a coffee cup. But there was a specific reason for that. Inside that cup was an individually hand-packaged bag of Ethiopian coffee. <clears throat> and what made that so wonderful, those individual bags of coffee in the cups, was that they were lovingly put together by the mothers of children for whom we have been carrying in Africa children who have AIDS and are struggling for their very lives. And as Dr. Koistra said, when you care for the children, you also end up caring for their mamas. Well, many of those women have become Christians through our love for their children, and they wanted to do something special for us, for the PCA, and, and this was all they could do out of their poverty. They took great joy and even godly pride in packaging those little bags of coffee to send to Christians they had never met and will likely never see this side of heaven. It was their letter to the Christians in America. And it occurs to me that Dr. Koistra, as he described their love for us, it occurs to me that we have much to learn from those ladies who sent their love across the world to us in bags of coffee. One of the first lessons we can learn from them is Paul's own point as he wrote to the Christians in Rome. It mattered not whether they were Greeks or barbarians or wise or foolish. They were brothers. They were sisters in the Lord. I think of the day that those Ethiopian women were laboring to prepare those hundreds of bags of coffees for us. They did not have impressive clothing, no Versace or Gucci dresses, no air conditioning, no fancy cars, not even unfancy cars. We wouldn't understand their language. They don't look like we do, nor, nor 
we like them. They're not like us in so many ways, but we share more in common with those African women than we do with thousands of people who look just like we do, who sound and live like we do, who live at the same socioeconomic level as we do, and yet who are living in a completely different universe, spiritually speaking. The Paul uses that, uh, that word barbarians <clears throat> probably is an original reference to a language barrier in which those who spoke differently sounded uh, to Greek speakers as though they were saying bar, 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 bar. And so the name uh, barbarians. Sometimes we like to poke a little bit of harmless fun at those who sound different from ourselves. Uh, but especially when it comes to brothers and sisters in the Lord, it must end there as well. Our relationship with them, with brothers and sisters, very different from ourselves, transcends place and nationality and even time itself. Now what lessons may we learn about Paul's treatment of those Christians who are at a great distance from ourselves and quite different from us in many ways. Well, first of all, we may learn from Paul to pray. To pray for our brothers and sisters far and wide. Verse 9, Without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. He calls on the Lord as his witness, takes an oath that he is praying constantly for them. He was consumed with prayer for them. Even Christians he had never met. And with what intensity did he pray for them? We could supply many examples from the word of the mighty prayers Paul prayed for the saints. But listen to just this one from another one of his letters to the Ephesians. For this reason... Paul writes, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now imagine the effect of such a prayer on those for whom God was pleased to answer. There is one way that we may always love Brothers and sisters, even surround them with God's love and care, even from untold miles away and separated by cultures. We may lift them up. We may surround them with God's love right here in prayer. And that's exactly what we do. We've done it this morning with our brothers and sisters in Saudi Arabia. We do it even more in the Wednesday evening prayer meeting. And I hope that every one of you and your families at home are doing the same. We must, like Paul, 
love our brothers and sisters all over the world by praying for them. Ministries like Voice of the Martyrs, for instance, will help us to think internationally about brothers and sisters who are suffering for the same name that we name, the name of Christ. Second, not only must we pray for our brothers and sisters far away, we must also rejoice over them and think highly of them. Sometimes, I fear, we tend to toward pity. Pity on brothers and sisters, and that only. We think of our brothers and sisters in Sudan, for instance, and we think only of their pain and of their trials. Well, think also, brothers and sisters, of their faith. Consider what faith it must require for them to identify with Christ and to continue to identify with Christ, even if it means starving or worse, seeing their children starved or worse by Muslims. Think of those Ethiopian women so driven to love us, to love you and love me, that they prepared coffees when every minute is precious to them just to find their next family meal. What remarkable faith is being shown by Christians all over the face of the globe and whose testimony is finding its way around the world. The faith of the Roman Christians in Paul's day was doing just that. It was known all over the world of that day. And, in that, and that in a day before television and newspapers, before telephones and telegraphs. History tells us that the faith of the Christians in Rome was so strong that Emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome because, quote, the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus. Crestus is the Latin spelling for Christ. I told you that unbelief cannot tolerate faith and will seek to undo it wherever it is found. And that is precisely where we as Christians must take the highest possible view of our brothers and sisters around the world, not merely pitying them, certainly not despising them, but esteeming them for whom Christ has died, many of whom are willing themselves to die every day for Christ. Respectful love. That is the back on which the gospel advances. Iden, sometimes called Saint Iden or Apostle to the Saxons, brought the gospel to Northern Ireland in the 7th century. A Saxon king had requested that a missionary come and proclaim the gospel in his kingdom. There was a missionary sent, but he returned, the missionary did, to Ireland complaining of the, quote, stubborn and barbarous disposition of the English. The English have no manners, he said. They behave like savages. He reported that the task was hopeless. Then Iden spoke in response, I think, brother, 
that you may have been too severe for such ignorant hearers and that you should have led them on gently, giving them first the milk of the religion before the meat. Aydin was sent to Northumbria and his respectful treatment of the people there was used to bring many to know Christ. That was the way Paul treated those to whom he was sent. Whether they were already in the kingdom or needing to be introduced to the gospel of grace, and that is the way that you and I must treat others as well, particularly our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Which brings me to a third point. Not only must we pray for these Christians we've never met, not only must we hold them in esteem and love, but third, esteeming them, we must also expect not only to give to them, but also to receive from them. Paul, the the great apostle, the colossus of Christianity, he did this very thing. It almost sounds as though he catches himself there in verse 11. Did you see that? He says, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. And then quickly he adds in verse 12, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. The point is, Paul is not the only one who has something to offer. Neither are you. We Christians in America have a terrible tendency to think it is deeply rooted in our fabric that we have it all together. That our particular form of Christianity, down to the type of dress we wear, down to the jargon we speak, down to the terms we use, must, must be exported to the nations. For instance, our faith is often, far too often, our faith is really a task-oriented faith. And that's to be expected. That's a particularly American attribute. But is it, a, is it a biblical attribute? One thing that our missionaries say, at least the ones I've talked to from a few different countries, is that they have had to learn from the Christians there to be relationally oriented and not merely task-oriented. Several years ago, one of our missionaries told me that it drives him crazy that he can't get a job done in a day because the national Christians with whom he works are much more interested in relating to one another than in the mere task at hand. And that, and a host of other ways, Christians in faraway places need not only to learn from us, but also to teach us. We stand in need of learning, too. Paul is not so arrogant as to tell the Romans that he is coming to bless them only. He knows full well 
that upon arriving at Rome, it will be a mutual encouragement by one another's faith. Or as Godet put it, quote, Paul was too sincerely humble and at the same time too delicate in his feelings to allow it to be supposed that the spiritual advantage resulting from his stay among them would be all on one side. Dear flock, you have brothers and sisters all over the world, most of whom you will never meet this side of glory. But they are your brothers and sisters just the same. They have been purchased, they have been washed by the same blood. They don't look like you. In many ways, they don't act like you. But that does not make them your inferior or your inferiors. In many ways, it's just the opposite. Just think on the faithfulness of those African bishops who are now standing against the Western Church because she has been unfaithful to the Lord and a hundred other ways that the masculine faith of other Christians in the world puts our own soft and effeminate faith to shame. For those brothers and sisters, for those saints, we must pray. Them we must hold in high esteem. For God calls them his sons and daughters, and from them we must learn. For God has gifted them with faith from which we may gain encouragement and wisdom for ourselves. And when we imitate Paul in those very ways, and as we imitate him, we will know the better what it means to be a Christian. Not only here, and now, but in the world, and for eternity. Amen.